So I would actually say that it's not a sign of despair that there are these systemic forces. I think that only doubles down my insistence that if we can put tools in the hands of students, policymakers, community activists, to be able to tell the spatial stories here, then we can first just illuminate and make it very clear to everybody just how inequality takes root in measured outcomes in our society. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Derek Oyang. Derek is a lecturer at Stanford University and we're going to be talking about his research into the spread of COVID-19. So during this interview with Derek, you'll hear him referring to a company called SafeGraph. And SafeGraph has actually been on the podcast before, or I should say one of their data scientists has been on the podcast before. And he explains a lot more about how they collect the data, where it comes from, and goes into more depth around some of the use cases. So if during the conversation you find yourself missing a little bit of context and wanting to have some more details, go a little bit deeper, learn more about it, please go back and listen to the episode called Building Geospatial Truth Sets. And, and I'm sure that'll answer a lot of the questions and fill in some of the blanks for you. Before we get started today, I want to say a big thank you to our sponsor, Mapsimize. Um, back in episode 67, uh, I had the, the privilege of talking to Alistair Dickinson. He's done a lot of interesting things in the, the geospatial world, building businesses. He's built a couple of different businesses. He's learned a lot on the way. He shared a lot of his experiences, the services he's using, the way he's pulling them together. And I think he's, he's doing something really interesting. So he's adding spatial functionality to customer management systems. Um, he goes into a lot more detail in the episode. So if that sounds like something you might be interested and uh, go back and check out episode 67 to, to learn a little bit more and I'll also include some, some links in the show notes of this episode so you can click through and, and find out more if you're interested. Okay, let's get on with the episode. Hi Derek, welcome to the podcast. You are a lecturer at the University of Stanford and you've been doing some really interesting research around the COVID virus. And of course this has something to do with geospatial. So you've been using tracking data, spatial data as a big part of your research. Before we dive into all that though, can you just give the listeners a, a brief overview of, of your background? Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. As you said, my name is Derek Oyang. I'm a lecturer at Stanford University in the Future Bay Initiative. And I did my own education at Stanford uh, in architectural design, civil engineering, and structural engineering, but really got into data analytics and urban planning and policy after finishing my graduate degree and getting hired back as a lecturer to try to increase the amount of community-engaged research and education we do here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I've been doing that for about five years. And this past 10 weeks of an academic quarter, we've been really focused on COVID rapid response with local community and government partners um, around the Stanford area. So uh, recently I did a podcast interview with a company called SafeGraph and they're collecting this amazing um, point of interest da database. And I know that you've been working with that and they're the ones that actually connected me with you and the research that you're doing. So now that we have a, a bit of an understanding of who you are uh, in terms of your, your background, perhaps you could talk a little bit about uh, the, the, the data set that you're using and perhaps the, the SafeGraph data consortium. Yeah, so SafeGraph is a data set that is available to consumers broadly, but for the COVID crisis, the SafeGraph team put together a data consortium 
of researchers and academics to specifically use their data in a way that can produce intelligence for COVID response. They put together a very large Slack workspace in which academics are talking on a daily basis about what kinds of new data sets and features in those data sets they'd like to see released on a regular basis. The consortium members also share a lot of work in progress with each other and get direct conversation going on about the research itself. And it's been a pleasure to see the result of that open, transparent discussion amongst academics and between academics and a data vendor to just consistently improve the way in which this data can be leveraged for understanding how human movement and interactions might relate to COVID exposure and spread uh, in our communities. The data consortium specifically gives us an access key to completely free data in this regard. And some of the data products they provide through the consortium are the same as what can be purchased on their own uh, data portal facing the public. Um, but there are some unique data sets that have been refined specifically for uh, understanding COVID. And I think probably at the end of this process, they will have turned that back around and make that just a general product available uh, to the public. So I think this is one of the best examples I've seen of sort of public-private uh, partnership. So uh, understood in that way that we, on one side, we have this private company, Safegraph, who's collecting, maintaining, and, and ultimately selling this data set, providing it freely to the research community. And this feedback loop, I think, has been really interesting to see. Like you were saying earlier, um, so you're providing feedback to them. They were implementing the changes, making a better product for you, and at the same time, making a, a product that is, is going to be something that they can sell later on. So it's been a really interesting relationship to, to sort of watch develop over time. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that the actual data itself. I described it earlier as a, a points of, of interest database, but I, that, that's a really sort of broad description. Could, could you go a little bit deeper for us so we have an understanding of what you're building your, your COVID research on in terms of data? Absolutely. So I think the SafeGraph data can be simply described as two separate products. The first product is called Places, and it is just independently a very well-contained, compiled, and refined data set of places where economic transactions happen in the U.S. Um, in the Bay Area, for example, uh, we've got over 100,000 individually tagged businesses, retail establishments, and it would include also places like parks. And for the typical geospatial user, the expectation here is really well geocoded latitude longitude coordinates, which is the case, uh, but it even includes building footprints and boundaries that are continually refined over time. So regardless of what you might then want to know about how visits happen to these places, I think that place's data set itself is already uh, incredibly valuable for practical work and research work. So that does stand as its own product um, and is something that we make use of even pre-COVID to just understand what business development and accessibility to different kinds of amenities looks like in the Bay Area. So we've got places on one end. The layer that really gets us excited on top of that is called patterns data. And patterns data looks like either monthly or weekly large data sets that you can download in which the row by row makeup of the data set are those places. So you'll just have a Starbucks show up every time in the weekly patterns data set if it exists in the Bay Area. 
But then the fields of information you have about that location are the counts of devices that SafeGraph has access to, cell phone movement data, and whether those devices have visited the specific location. Uh, and then there's a disaggregation of a few different qualities and characteristics of that visit data. For example, you can break it down to daily and hourly visit data. Uh, you can break it down to some of the origins of visitors. What that specifically looks like in the data set is, say, if I have 100 visits to the Starbucks, there will be a field uh, of a JSON uh, object that shows block group IDs for the origin neighborhoods where those visitors came from. And it will break up that number 100 into smaller numbers of, you know, maybe 10 came from this specific block group that you can find in GIS and 12 came from that one. So that, especially for those who want to think about the travel that happened, the movement from point A to point B, that helps start to develop uh, an origin destination matrix. And it also gives you information about, well, that device pool that SafeGraph has, of course, isn't 100% of a population, but they will go ahead and let us know how big that pool is. And if we look at the US overall, it's on the 10 um, to one ratio. So if there are 300 million or so uh, people in the US, then for any given month of data that SafeGraph provides, they're looking at about 30 million devices, which then academics can use those kinds of ratios to then extrapolate true visit counts out of just the limited sample set that, that we're actually seeing as numbers in the data set. So all those pieces coming together means that we can start to build a record of where people moved around in a specific locality. And when it comes to COVID, then we can talk about the public health and community spread implications of that movement. But that hopefully gives folks a sense of what the data set looks like. And there might just be all kinds of useful insights from a research and from a practical perspective of having a reliably maintained and produced data set of places and then the visit counts uh, to and from those places. Thank you very much for that. I think that was an, an absolutely brilliant overview of the data set that you gave there. So we've got a points data set or a places data set, I should say, and a patterns data set. So we, we, we've got a really good idea of where these places places are and the movement that's happening you know, to and from them, around them, in the population in general. Of course, here we're talking about the Bay Area in San Francisco, but I think we, we could extrapolate out and talk about the entire US when, when later on when we start talking about the implications of this data set and of your research in, in general. Yeah, I'll note that actually the consortium provides the data as a US-wide data set, which is really, really large at times. So in the course environment, what we do as a teaching team uh, because our work is predominantly focused on nine counties in the Bay Area, is we actually have a processing step we provide the students where we actually remove data for the entire other U.S. and bring that data set down in size to just the places in the Bay Area and the possible origins of visitors to places in that Bay Area. And that's a kind of data processing step that we do just so it's easier to pass this data back and forth on our servers and do analysis. But the original size of the data is already full US. And I completely agree that this data unlocks this kind of consideration of urban planning questions and COVID response questions instantly for the whole US. Yeah, so, so let's talk about COVID response or, or COVID research in general, because I, I feel like a lot of people 
imagine, I, I'm definitely one of them, I imagine that uh, tracking data is somehow the, the key to figuring this thing out, to finding out how the virus is spreading, where, should, where we should be going, where we should not be going, how we should be moving around. Um, is it really that simple? I think the intuition is certainly there for most people when they're thinking about the relationship between GIS and COVID-19. I might just say at the highest level, if there is any kind of spatial relationship between where we are in our societies, where we go and who we interact with, uh, and spread of a disease, then certainly our measurement tools and our policy tools must also have a geospatial component to be able to capture that effect. So I don't think it's a question of whether or not spatial data and spatial analysis matters for COVID-19. I think the problem is understanding exactly what tools can be used for specific kinds of insights and decisions. What I think is really great about the SafeGraph data is it does probably matter that a specific location is of a certain size and cramming 100 people into that bar or that grocery store has a different outcome than having just 10 people through careful social distancing compliance. Um, the question of whether there are 10 different census block groups that are frequenting the same grocery store versus it's a more local corner grocery store and there's only one census block group that is contributing to visits there is likely to reflect uh, a degree of mixing that can also intensify disease spread. And these are exactly the kinds of measurements and observations that can be directly made using the SafeGraph data. But with, in its absence, you may only be able to generally postulate about questions of concentration of people in space and in time and across different census block groups. Um, but SafeGraph allows us to actually observe to the degree that that has happened in specific localities and then potentially do the work to connect that to case growth we then see a few weeks later from that movement behavior. And from our perspective and from the perspective of many consortium members, we've been starting to see promising results in the research and analysis to connect SafeGraph movement and specific ways to construct those indicators with case growth that we're seeing uh, through county health data across the US. This raises a couple of questions for me. Um, firstly, I, I, it feels like we're talking about two different things here in terms of factors that are potentially really affecting the spread of the virus. It sounds like concentration of people in a certain area is one thing. So, so the density of people, how many people are you know, close together in, in a certain space, in a confined space perhaps. But that for me anyway, it's not necessarily the same as, as movement of people. Am I on the right track here? Are these two different things or can we consider them to be the same, equally important in terms of uh, the, the COVID virus? Uh, that's a great distinction you've made. And let me clarify then um, on both fronts. So the visits location data that SafeGraph provides tends to be indoor locations. It is still a hypothesis but I think intuitively we would all agree that from what we've seen of stories about COVID, indoor transmission is likely to be greater than outdoor transmission because of the way that particles can exist in an air conditioned um, or just a sort of ventilated space indoors compared to free blowing air outside. Um, so it may just be coincidental that the view SafeGraph particularly provides of human movement is exactly in the environments that are the most important from a disease transmission perspective. But that is still, of course, a, a hypothesis. 
the SafeGraph data doesn't help us track exactly the route people took from point A to point B. We just know where they might have started from and uh, what time of day they showed up at a Starbucks. I personally think that there could be many important factors when it comes to the route itself. Uh, for example, if this is a place like San Francisco where public transit is often used, uh, it could be that actually the buses and trains themselves are an important vehicle for disease spread. But that is actually completely invisible to us in terms of SafeGraph data and would rely on us bringing in other kinds of insights like getting ridership data from a local transit agency or doing the network analysis to try to infer the potential modes of travel. Uh, but I think it's fair to establish here and has certainly come up in the consortium that we can get some view into the questions of the relationship between human movement and disease spread, but it tends to be concentrated in a focus on indoor establishments, which is what SafeGraph data provides. Um, and whether we like it or not, that's what we have. But I think a lot of us feel confident that that is getting at the heart of the matter when it comes to what is in fact risky human interaction. I think we should try a little thought experiment here. Let's say I could provide you with perfect data. And by that, I mean, um, you could track the entire population 100% of the time down to millimeter accuracy. You had this amazing data set and assuming we had the tools to deal with that, would that be the silver bullet then? So you would know where everyone was all the time, essentially. Is that, you know, the, the mic drop? Can we solve the problem there? Can we answer the questions? Or, or are we left with, with other challenges? Because I'm imagining that even with this theoretical perfect data set of human movement throughout a population, that we're still going to struggle trying to link movement to the spread of the disease. Yeah. So I would say in many ways, I would describe that as a silver bullet. Um, but maybe to bring this a little bit more into reality, I would first react by saying that contact tracing and tools to eventually be able to use Bluetooth data um, or just other forms of cell phone data to figure out what in fact was the full visit pattern of somebody who ended up getting the disease was, um, that maybe we could call that a bronze bullet here. Uh, because I think there is so much more insight that can be gained once that kind of data becomes available to analysts than what we're talking about with SafeGraph here. And SafeGraph is an incredible proxy uh, in the meantime. But one of the practical problems with SafeGraph, besides just being a sample set, is that it tends to provide a lot of that movement behavior aggregated up to the entire size of the business establishment or to a census block group. And the problem you run into there is an ecological inference problem where you can only know averages or summaries of data for a larger group of people. But the direct way this disease works has to be at the person by person level. And we're ultimately unable to get down to tracking individual people longitudinally using a data set like SafeGraph and probably for very good reason. Um, contact tracing would be a game changer from my perspective, given all the privacy considerations attached to it to be able to see that true individual movement behavior, interaction behavior at that level of granularity you're describing. But I say it's a bronze bullet, I think, to, to your point, because it will certainly include gaps in the full understanding. For example, what I've heard about for contact tracing doesn't necessarily sound to me like it's GIS data fully. Um, it may just take the form of Bluetooth distance between your device and other devices that also have the app and then creating a trace of basically who was within your vicinity in the recent past. Uh, and that, I think, is very useful for the act of contact tracing. 
But that sh- that could potentially ignore the geospatial implications of where, in fact, those interactions happened, whether they were in an indoor tight establishment or in an outdoor park. And just knowing exactly what the trace of these movements were in a fixed geospatial grid would clue us into other characteristics of the urban environment that may be important to understand. For example, a, a view of contact tracing can't let us know that maybe from an urban planning perspective, the access people have to backyard space for recreation is actually potentially a huge driver to how likely they are to go out side to parks and to streets to try to get that recreational engagement. And really the important systems change there is to think about public access or private access to open space. I don't think you get that from any of these bullets we're talking about. It takes a systems perspective. Um, so I, I really um, appreciate the point you're making there that even in a thought experiment of perfect GIS knowledge, um, there can still be missing pieces of a holistic systems understanding of, of all the levers that um, and factors that affect uh, human well-being, human movement, and in this case, public health. So I, I think what we're getting at here is this is a difficult problem to solve that um, contact tracing or tracking people in general, especially at the kind of resolution that we're talking about that would perhaps be necessary to get the full picture of what's actually going on here in terms of the spread of the virus, that it's, it's a really difficult problem in itself. And this assumes, of course, that even if I had this data, that I knew who got the virus and when they got it. So I could you know, trace back. A- a- am I right? I think that's correct. So this is a good time to bring up that a lot of the research we want to do with SafeGraph data is a kind of confidence building that there is, in fact, a relationship between human movement in space and disease spread. But to construct answers to those questions assumes not only that you have good movement data, which we think we have from SafeGraph to some level of detail, but we need case data as well. We need data about the disease spread. And that's a whole other can of worms, which of course SafeGraph itself does not provide us the solutions to that problem. We, in particular in the Bay Area with our work, have nine counties that are pretty good in terms of data access. What you're able to find right now, speaking in at the end of June, is dashboards from individual county health departments that can show down to the zip code level daily data about cumulative cases. And in other views on the dashboard, you can get breakdowns by race, ethnicity, age, so forth. But that zip code level daily data, we think, is really promising for being able to actually bring that case data, that understanding of disease spread, in line with the level of granularity of SafeGraph data. Because if there is, in fact, something that matters in terms of movement, and we can trace that movement, at least from SafeGraph's perspective, back to specific census block groups. So we can say, ultimately, through analysis of the patterns data, that this census block group had this many visits to these types of establishments in a given week and dwelled there for this amount of time, then the signal we want to then see is, or, or measure is for basically that census block group, what did case growth look like? What did testing look like uh, some weeks into the future? For, for I think many places in the US uh, and uh, maybe even less uh, available elsewhere, you can't really get data about case behavior and case growth at anything lower than the county level. So you have this geospatial disconnect between county level aggregations and then much richer data about places and census block groups Uh, from SafeGraph. So no matter how good SafeGraph data gets and how many of these silver bullets we can get, if we can't link that back to 
the same granularity of case outcomes, then we're going to always have that disconnect there and, and inability to refine certain questions. So in the zip code case for the Bay Area, and that's actually only two out of nine counties that provide us that data. So we're also constantly trying to get that data from other counties. We have to do just a little bit of GIS work to take our safe graph understandings of movement and population from census statistics as well. And we actually have to bring that up in scale to zip codes because zip codes tend to be bigger than census block groups. But then with that, we have apples to apples comparisons we can start to make. And we have good daily data on both sides of the equation here, movement data and case growth data. We still have big questions about just how long symptoms take to manifest and then actually make their way through the testing system to become reported by these counties. And to make the matter worse, these counties still have very different ways in which they're reporting that data. But this has been a very useful starting point to then actually find some of these relationships. And in some of our recent work, taking some safe graph movement data at the zip code level and attaching to it some census characteristics like income, like the number of people per household and the number of people per room in a household, we've been able to explain the, seeing just the variation in those measures I've described, uh, over three quarters of the variation in case growth over some amount of time in zip codes in a specific county in the Bay Area. And that's not 100%. And maybe contact tracing as a tool can go way further if you end up knowing that somebody did in fact contract the disease. But from my perspective, a predictive tool with that kind of explanatory power is at least better than blindly making policy decisions about whether you're shutting off the entire economy or turning it all on back at the same time. So I'm hopeful that in the coming weeks and months of work across the consortium and here in the Bay Area, we can potentially put these kinds of predictive tools in the hands of decision makers so that at least they can make more informed decisions about the very spatial ways in which these policy tools and the health outcomes ultimately play out. Okay, so after hearing you talk about the, the various challenges that you're facing, I mean, you, you have great data on one side, you have um, data that sounds a little bit more difficult in terms of the, those the, the actual case numbers on the other side, but you have a, you've obviously figured out a way of bringing these two data sets together. You've created a process that gives you a really good sort of uh, relationship, uh, I would say, perhaps between cr case growth and, and movement. I, I'm completely blown away how difficult this sounds. Like I again, it, I, I said this at the start of the conversation. I like a lot of other people. I imagine was I'm walking around thinking that if we could track people, if we if everyone had access to cell phone data, or if researchers like you had access to our cell phone data, the problem would be solved. But it's become very clear to me during this conversation that that's half of the problem or, or maybe just quarter of the problem and that there's a whole bunch of other problems out there in terms of actually making accurate predictions about the spread of the, the disease. So you've, you've got these predictions now, you can, you can relate movement to, to the growth in, in cases. Can you say anything about that at this early stage? Is there something that sticks out for you in, in terms of what's affecting case growth or perhaps preventing case growth in different areas? I can say that, in fact, a lot of the fixed characteristics that we're getting from census data, uh, what that looks like for those who are familiar or not with census analysis is you can get five-year summaries of a recent community survey that goes out to a large swath of the public that looks like counts of households at the block group level. And we can bring in that data, but that's already past data about what, say, the income and age distribution and race and ethnicity was in a block group 
over the last five years, say from 2014 to 2018. So we wouldn't expect that necessarily to have a lot of explanatory power on uh, where case growth happens. But in fact, it does. And it honestly is more explanatory, has higher explanatory power than any of this safe graph visit behavior, which is basically to say that it appears to be the case that if you have higher income, however that actually manifests, we are seeing that you have a greater ability to shelter in place and a greater ability to avoid the impacts of COVID. Your age distribution in your block group, your uh, language um, uh, ability in terms of communicating with health departments and government entities, um, these kinds of fixed community socioeconomic demographic characteristics actually tell quite a bit of the story of what an equitable distribution of impact looks like, not just in the Bay Area, but I am seeing through the consortium similar findings across the U.S. I think that's sobering for the community of um, maybe wonks that want to you know, play with awesome visit data that actually so much of this is systemic in just the way opportunity distributes itself and our urban systems have been arranged for better or worse. That being said, we can see um, additional explanatory power through visits data of the type we're getting from SafeGraph and the work of the consortium, this open collaboration and communication is continuing to improve that data set. So I would expect to see its explanatory power improve in the coming weeks and months. For example, it took conversation in the consortium Slack channel to actually produce a version of the data set that had square footages of those places of interest automatically attached to the places. Um, and that unlocked a lot of research uh, in that regard. So I think it's sobering um, that visits data, GIS data won't tell the whole story, but I'm uh, hopeful that just the vehicle by which there have been these collaborations between researchers and with data vendors is a sign of where we can actually make progress in this conundrum. And hopefully the idea of data consortiums and just a greater competency and awareness of how to manipulate spatial data like this can broaden its effect to begin to happen in county health departments with the data they put out and potentially other kinds of data we would like to have about the economic impacts of, of COVID as well. Um, so I'm pretty hopeful of the systems mechanism we are seeing arise here of just opening the doors to more collaboration, more transparency with this kind of data, more knowledge sharing and teaching across sectors. Um, and maybe that ends up still having not much to do with the big systemic issues that the US and many other places need to reckon with, uh, seeing the impact that a pandemic can have on our political and social systems. But it gives me a little bit of hope as, a, as just an educator here in the Bay Area. So um, during the conversation, I, w I came to the point in my mind where I thought maybe this is an argument for, for the, the open world, right, where we're just tracked all the time, we, then we always have that data where everything is open. People can go in and see, okay, uh, Daniel was here, here and here, and yes, he developed the disease. And that would, uh, for a researcher like you, help you know, solve the problem would help stop the spread of this disease. I don't think this is the the, the first and the, the last one that uh, virus that we're going to see like this move through our community. I hope it is, but, you know, I, I think that, that might be a little bit naive. And then later on, when you talked about your findings being related to systemic issues, access to wealth and resources, 
I, I started to swing over to the other side and think, well, well maybe it's that, that old song again, again, you know, the, the people that have access to wealth, that have the most resources, do the best. Perhaps we shouldn't be focusing on, on spatial data at all when we consider health research. Um, whereabouts, what side of the line do you fall on in, in, in terms of, of this situation? So I think that spatial data can be an effective communication tool to bring awareness of this issue. Because I think those systemic issues of inequality in our systems are, in fact, also symptoms of underlying urban spatial arrangements and decisions. And many of the conversations that are hot right now in terms of racial inequality, which can stem from underlying conditions besides racism of just structural decisions that have been made in the past that are still with us today, whether we like it or not, that affected the urban arrangements of where housing is and where development goes and where transportation goes. And these get locked into the geography of the places we live and are working in the background all the time to affect our opportunities, um, our livelihoods. So spatial data is potentially exactly the magnifying glass we need to put to this history and to outcomes we can measure right now. So I would actually say that it's not a sign of despair that there are these systemic forces. I think that only doubles down my insistence that if we can put tools in the hands of students, policymakers, community activists, to be able to tell the spatial stories here, then we can first just illuminate and make it very clear to everybody just how inequality takes root in measured outcomes in our societies. And in COVID's example, we're looking at increased case, case growths in neighborhoods with predominantly people of color and people of low income and people with pre-existing health conditions. I think that's a spatial story. So we need to keep building these spatial tools so that those voices can be heard and those objective truths um, can't leave the, the conversations where the real decision-making happens. Um, so I'm, I'm very helpful for that, actually. Derek, I completely agree with you there, and I've, you put that in, in such a poetic way. It was it was really great to, to listen to. I just want to round off the conversation now by by asking a couple of last questions here. And my, my first thought is when I hear you talk about the uh, how far you've come in terms of the work you're doing with the data consortium, uh, the process that you've been through, the results that you've gotten so far, I, I wonder if we're better prepared for the next pandemic, for the next virus, or can, can we take any of these tools, these lessons learned, and apply them to the next one? Or, or will we have to look at it um, in a completely isolated situation? I'm pretty confident that this exact question doesn't even have to be about a theoretical next pandemic. It can be just about the second wave of COVID. Uh, in the Bay Area and across the U.S., we're starting to see counties make very different independent decisions about how best to reopen the economy. And I think a lot can get lost in just the chaos of policy decisions that are made without institutional memory of what the consequences were of past actions. And the SafeGraph data and the kind of research that's coming out of the consortium with many other efforts across the world are at least putting down an objective record of just what were our best understandings of how X activity and action led to the outcome. And in our world, that's perhaps visits to grocery stores, bars, these kinds of indoor environments in an urban environment do have this predictive power on what case growth looks like. So prior to having this kind of data and this kind of consortium, 
I think a lot of counties were making sometimes really wise and sometimes just random choices about blunt policy decisions like shelter in place, like reopening entire swaths of the economy. I think we're starting to get prepared and starting to get these tools in the hands of our local decision makers to say, first, you don't just have blunt options, perhaps with more refined insights, you can have more refined uh, policy tools as well. Say mobile testing in very specific neighborhoods where we see case growth growing or closing down and monitoring of a subset of businesses as opposed to just that entire industry sector. And I think those are going to be useful right away because as we speak, we're starting to see still that erratic diversity of choices that counties are making across the U.S. and the sobering surge of cases we're starting to see now with the reopening of the economy. So I think we want to get these tools in place uh, and they will be useful as soon as counties start to make more well-informed decisions based on these data tools. And the feedback loop will just continue to reinforce the efficacy of data tools like that. Um, so I think it's just a matter of having set these kinds of structures in place where researchers can work with each other and work with data and work with policymakers. Um, it would be great if that happened back in January, but maybe we needed a little bit of a kick to see that there's such a crisis that demands this kind of connection and collaboration and data-driven decision-making. And I think we're already learning that lesson, at least here in places like uh, the Bay Area and the U.S. Derek, I really want to thank you for your time, for your insights. Um, people like you doing the work that you're doing, it, it really gives me hope for the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. It, it's much appreciated. Before I let you go, where can the listeners go if they want to reach out to you, if they want to continue the conversation or, or find out more about your work? The best place to find our work that we discussed today is at bay.stanford.edu, bay as in B-A-Y. And there you can see the kinds of projects that students have been doing on COVID in partnership with local community groups and government groups. And you can find my contact information there as well. I will be sure to include all of those links in the show notes. Thank you very much, Derek. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to our sponsor, Mapsimize. Not only are they doing interesting work in the geospatial world and the mapping world, adding spatial functionality to customer relationship systems, but they're also supporting this podcast, which is helping us share the stories. It's helping us spread the word about geospatial. And for that, I am incredibly grateful. If you want to check them out, there'll be a few links in the show notes and feel free to, to click through, ask questions. Alistair is a great guy and I am sure he'll be happy to help where he can. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. Much, much, much appreciated. Um, I really appreciate people uh, reaching out to me as well. Comments, questions, suggestions, they are most welcome. You can find me on social media. You can find me on our website, mapscaping.com. There's a form there. There's an email. You can contact me if you like. And I would, I would be happy to respond, happy to help where I can. Uh, and I would love to hear from you. Your suggestions really help me sort of shape the direction of the podcast. Let me know what you're interested in and how I can make it better for you. So yeah, please feel free to reach out to me. I would really appreciate it. And that's it for me. We'll talk again next week. See you then. Bye.